December 2016, Gary Stephen Davis is found guilty for murdering two residents and attempting to murder a third at Walls End's Summit Care Nursing Home three years earlier. Now he's appealing his conviction. Another one of those, is he guilty or not? Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Islanders, look, before I start, for those that skip the end of the show, there will be a meet-up in Melbourne this coming Saturday, the 17th of November 2018, so stay tuned until the end for more info. Okay, just the other day, we had the Kathleen Folbig case, where she was convicted of killing her four babies, and is now trying to get a retrial, as her case was predominantly circumstantial. And and if you were to look at the evidence with fresh eyes and maybe more modern techniques, there could be a reasonable doubt in her guilt. And so, if there's a reasonable doubt, we let them out. This case today also relied on circumstantial evidence, and the offender, Gary Stephen Davis, reckons that he also didn't do it, and so he is appealing his conviction. So as I said at the start of the last case, I will be reading predominantly from the court records as to what went down in his trial. I've gone through and grabbed all the best bits and hopefully I can bring you a good overview on his case. I would also like to say that if Gary Stephen Davis was ever to be retried, that any potential jurors listening to this podcast now or in the future to, to act on the judge's direction when listening to evidence in that potential future case. Don't listen to me, okay? So, how did Davis end up where he is now? In prison, convicted of two murders and one count of attempted murder. Well, he worked in a nursing home, the Walls End Summit Care Nursing Home at 7 Bent Street, Walls End, New South Wales, Now, that's about a 20-minute drive west of Newcastle. It's here that on the 18th and 19th of October 2013, that 83-year-old Gwendoline Fowler, 91-year-old Audrey Manuel, and 80-year-old Ryan, or Greg Kelly, all became extremely ill. Now, I'll go into each of these three nursing home patients in more detail, But basically, by the afternoon of the 19th of October, Gwen would be dead. On the 29th of October, Ryan, or as I said, Greg Kelly, would be dead. And by January 2015, after never really recovering from her illness, Audrey would also be dead. First, let me describe the Walls End Summit Care building. It's within a three-level building and provides beds for 142 residents. 
There are two wards on the ground level, Magnolia and Lavender, and two on the first floor, Mount View and Park View. There are north and south wings to each ward. Each of Mount View, Park View and Lavender wards had 35 beds and Magnolia ward had 37 beds. The main public entrance is on the ground floor. On the lower ground floor, there is a staff entrance, staff room, kitchen, laundry and other facilities accessible only by staff. Twin elevators serviced each floor and there were fire stairs running between the floors. There were five CCTV cameras installed and working on the 18th of October 2013. There were were two more, but they were not working. There was one over the front public entrance to the building and four on the lower ground floor, one covering the staff entrance on Raglan Street, one at the delivery areas, and two covering the corridor leading from the staff meal room area and around to the elevators. Basically, the CCTV cameras covered all the possible entry points to the building and particularly to the ground and first floors where the wards were. Keypad entry systems were installed on all doors and access points and within the building itself. There were two types of code one for visitors who had relatives staying at the home and one for staff. Contractors, garbage collectors and delivery people did not have access to any of these codes. Visitors without codes would buzz the reception and they would be let in remotely. There was also a visitor's book at reception. So, if you've ever worked in the typical corporate-type building, you're probably familiar with the concepts of keypads and visitors' books as a fundamental type of security risk management system. Staff at Walls End Summit Care worked in three shifts, basically morning, afternoon and night shift with 30 minutes overlap to do the usual handing over of keys and a briefing of events that had occurred in the ward by the outgoing to the incoming registered nurse nurses and team leaders. During the morning and afternoon shifts, there was a registered nurse working on each floor. That is, one in the Mount View and Park View wards on the first floor and another working in the Magnolia and Lavender wards on the ground floor. A team leader and four assistants in nursing, which are AINs, were assigned to each ward. Generally, two AINs worked in each wing of a ward, but they would provide assistance in the other wing if required. Summit Care also employed casual staff and staff provided by nursing agencies when it was necessary to fulfil an unplanned rostering requirements. These staff were not given keypad access codes. Now, the problem with all these procedures, the keypad access administering injections, the filling out of the visitor book, all these procedures were sloppily adhered to over time. It would be found that visitors had the staff access codes, team leaders were injecting patients, and there was no strict monitoring of the visitor book, making sure everyone signed it. So, when shit goes down like it did at Summit Care, it makes it bloody difficult to sort out exactly what went down. 
So let's have a look what happened to Gwen on the 19th of October 2013. Miss Gwendolyn Fowler was aged 83. She'd been married for 55 years when her husband passed away in 2005. She had three daughters and Gwen suffered from Alzheimer's disease, diabetes mellitus, Uh, type 2, rheumatoid arthritis and osteoporosis. She was 150 centimetres tall and weighed 43 kilograms. She was a resident of Room 8 in the south wing of the Mount View Ward. In early September 2013, Gwen's doctor, a Dr Gay, took her off Diamicron 60 milligrams, which is a medication for her type 2 diabetes mellitus and asked for her blood glucose levels to be checked daily for two weeks. These levels were found to be okay, and so her doctor asks for her to now be tested weekly. Her levels continued to be in an acceptable range. Dr Gray examined Gwen on the 17th of October and found her to be in reasonable health given her current medical condition. On the morning of the 18th of October, Gwen's blood glucose level was 5.8 millimoles per litre and AIN's Junine Avery and Erin Matthews helped Gwen out of bed that morning and assisted her with her personal cares. She was taken to breakfast in the dining room, walking with the assistance of her walking frame. AIN Matthews fed Gwen and she ate all of her breakfast. AIN Avery described Gwen as taking direction well and appeared normal, and her movements were as good as as a standard I'd come to expect from her. I'm not sure what movements she's talking about, if it's in the walking frame or what, but her movements were okay. AIN Matthews noticed nothing untoward about her. After breakfast, Gwen was taken to the toilet and then to the lounge room in the south wing. At some stage, as she usually did, she made her way to sit on a lounge in the foyer of the ward near the nurse's station. At about 11.45am, the AIN started to take residents to the dining room for lunch, which was usually at midday. AIN Matthews assisted Gwen to eat lunch. She ate most of it, but appears to have become frustrated with AIN's Matthew's encouragement to eat. Apparently, Gwen got the Cambo rage and attempted to bite AIN Matthews. Gary Stephen Davis was in the dining room at the time. He was giving out medications when Gwen got the rage, and he said, where did that come from? AIN Matthews was untroubled, She said this would sometimes happen as Gwen would occasionally become frustrated when being encouraged to eat and drink. AIN Avery, however, thought it was odd or strange and out of character for the Gwen that she knew. Still, she thought Gwen appeared her usual self throughout the remainder of the day, well, at least until her shift ended at 3pm. After lunch, Gwen was taken to the toilet and then back to sit in the foyer. AIN Matthews said that when she left her, she seemed fine. She last saw her at about 1.45pm. At some stage later, Gwen returned to her room. Her daughter, Julie Ross, entered Summit Care at 3.53pm, 
signed the visitor's book and proceeded to her mother's room. She briefly said hello as she passed the resident near the entry to the ward and popped into her room to say hello to another resident. It must have been close to 4pm when she entered her mother's room. The dividing curtain separating the two beds in the room was pulled across. Julie found her mother in a state that prompted her to immediately seek assistance from nursing staff. RN or registered nurse Maria Zubakova and other staff attended upon Gwen. She was cold, clammy and unresponsive. Her temperature was low and her blood glucose level was found to be 1.1 or 1.3 millimoles per litre. Basically, she was suffering from hypoglycemia and hypothermia. The ambulance service was called and Gwen was taken to John Hunter Hospital. Doctors at the hospital confirmed a diagnosis of hypoglycemia. There was not thought to be any reason for suspicion. The family decided there should be no further investigations or treatment and simply asked that Gwen be kept comfortable. She was returned to Summit Care late that evening for palliative care. This news was passed on at the handover to the Saturday morning shift staff, including Gary Stephen Davis. Gwen sadly passed away at about 12.50pm the next day. Dr Gay accepted that Gwen had passed away due to an age-related event. On Monday the 21st of October, she signed death and cremation certificates. Later that day, she reviewed incoming correspondence from John Hunter Hospital about another of her patients, Miss Audrey Manuel, and noted the similarity of the diagnosis. So let's find out what happened to Audrey. Miss Audrey Manuel was aged 91 as of the 18th of October 2013. She had two daughters and a son. She'd been a resident in room 19 in the north wing of the Mount View Ward since moving into Summit Care in 2009. She weighed 36 kilos. Audrey was also under the care of Dr Gay, who first saw her in March 2013. She was a dementia patient who also suffered from osteoporosis, depression, glaucoma and gastroesophageal reflux. Now these conditions were being well managed according to Dr Gay. There was also no history of diabetes. Dr Gay last saw Audrey on the 17th of October 2013. She seemed to Dr Gay to be very well consistent with her current medical condition. On the morning of Saturday 19th of October, she was seen by AIN Jordan Franks at 7am and appeared to be fine. Miss Franks assisted with her breakfast and said, While I was feeding Audrey, she appeared in good spirits and her normal mood. She's always happy. She was talking to me. After breakfast, she was walking around the wing with her walking frame as she usually did. At about 10.30am, Audrey was sitting in the foyer area of the Mount View ward. She was asked by Miss Catherine Tyndall of the kitchen staff if she would like morning tea and she responded with an affirmative nod. Miss Tyndall said that Audrey usually liked a bit of a chat, but not on this day. She assumed she was just having a bad day. She said, Aud was a little confused when I spoke to her, a little different to her normal response. It seemed a little slow. 
AIN Erin Matthews saw Audrey sitting in the foyer at about 11.15am. She described her as being a little confused. Miss Michelle Sutherland arrived at 11.30am to visit her mother, uh, Miss Maureen Wheatley. Maureen was sitting in the foyer with Audrey. Miss Sutherland gave evidence that Audrey had an untouched cup of tea and a piece of cake on the walker in front of her. She appeared to be dozing or sleepy and did not respond to an attempt to gain her attention. Miss Sutherland decided to watch her for a minute in case there was something wrong. While she sat next to her mother, she noticed that Audrey's right hand began to shake and then it became more pronounced. Gary Stephen Davis was in the nearby nurse's station and he came out saying, I just caught that out the corner of my eye. His attempts to gain a response were unsuccessful. Other staff came to assist. RN Paulette Hills took charge. She noted that Audrey was drooling. Her eyes were open but she appeared on the verge of passing out. She was very pale. At her request, Gary Stephen Davis carried out full observations which revealed, amongst other things, that she had a low temperature of 33.4 degrees Celsius and a high pulse. She was taken to her room by wheelchair. A blood glucose reading was taken with a very low result of 1.3 millimoles per litre. An injection of glucagon raised the level but not acceptably. An ambulance was called and Audrey was taken to John Hunter Hospital. In the emergency department at the hospital, Audrey was confirmed to be experiencing a hypoglycemic and hypothermic episode. She was given repeated doses of glucose, but the blood glucose level did not respond adequately. The medical registrar, Dr. Sven Sveich, was advised by a clinical biochemist to carry out blood tests for insulin, C-peptide and glucose. The results were that the insulin level was 2,190 milli-international units per litre, C-peptide was 0.1 microgram per litre and glucose was 0.8 millimoles per litre. Based on these results and other clinical observations, he concluded that Audrey's symptoms were caused by the administration of a very high-dose insulin in a non-therapeutic setting. So, Audrey was maintained on a glucose infusion as her blood glucose level fluctuated over the ensuing five days. She remained under the care of Dr. Quatch, who said that she continued to improve but never attained the same level of functioning she had prior to her admission. She was not able to swallow thin fluid competently and was being fed with thickened food only. She was not able to mobilise independently. Her prognosis was poor. Audrey remained in John Hunter Hospital until the 1st of November 2013, when she was transferred to Belmont Hospital. She later moved to a nursing home in Waratah. She passed away in January 2015 from unrelated causes. Now, when the news of Audrey getting ill like this got back to Dr Gay, who, as I told you before, had just signed the death and cremation certificates for Gwen, who had also suffered from hypoglycemia and hypothermia, she contacted Summit Care, who said they would look into it, 
and she called a Dr. Quatch at the hospital who said it looked like a deliberate poisoning with a large dose of insulin. She recalled the death and cremation certificates and the matter was referred to the coroner. Now, three cheers to Dr. Gay. Lucky Dr. Gay was on the ball and actually gave a damn about her patients. Anyway, Gwen's body was returned from the funeral directors and taken to the Newcastle Department of Forensic Medicine. A Dr. Jane Valetic, the senior staff specialist in forensic pathology, she carried out an autopsy examination on the 24th of October 2013. She concluded that the direct cause of death was a bilateral bronchopneumonia with the antecedent causes being hypoglycemia and insulin overdose. So, two insulin overdoses at the same nursing home on the same day with patients that didn't require insulin injections. Now, we need to talk about Mr. Ryan Kelly, or as he was known, Greg Kelly. Greg was 80 as of the 19th of October 2013. He was a widower with two daughters. He'd been a resident in room 24 in the north wing of the Mount View Ward, having moved to Summit Care in February 2012. He was 164 centimetres tall and weighed 60 kilo. Dr. Robert Casonas had been Greg's treating general practitioner for a short time prior to October 2013. Greg's conditions included Alzheimer's dementia, ischemic heart disease and hypertension. Dr. Casonas was not aware of any history of diabetes and said there would be no reason Greg would be prescribed insulin. Miss Margaret Martin, daughter to Greg Kelly, last saw him on the 14th of October 2013 and described him as being in his usual health. She was not aware of any problems between her father and the staff of Summit Care and thought they all seemed to hold him in high esteem. AIN Jordan Franks checked on Greg as part of her morning rounds soon after commencing her shift on the 19th of October 2013. She also fed him his breakfast in his room at about 8.30am and described him as being absolutely fine. She also described him generally as being mentally with it. She was talking to him as she fed him and he appeared to be following the conversation. During the course of her shift, Ms. Franks checked on Greg three or four times and noticed nothing unusual. After she returned from her lunch break just before 2pm, she saw Greg sitting in a chair in his room. He was asleep, which was normal. AIN Cheryl Minter assisted Greg in getting out of bed this morning and helping him to shower. She described him as being his normal self. Later that day, she brought lunch to his room, but when she later returned, he'd not touched it. He said he did not want any and seemed tired. However, Miss Minter considered this to be normal. She said he likes to sleep. RN Paulette Hills walked past Greg's room at about 2.40pm and saw him standing with his walking frame at the end of his bed. He appeared to be fussing around with some of his personal belongings that were on the foot of his bed. There was nothing she observed that gave her any reason for concern about Greg's welfare. In fact, she noted that he was in apparent good health for the entirety of her shift. Team leader Michael Webb went to Greg's room at about 3.15pm and found him sitting in his chair asleep. Mr Webb woke him. 
He described him as being a little drowsy, as normal as you would be after being woken. He assisted Greg to have a sip of drink. He then went back to sleep and Mr. Webb left. At about 4.30pm, Mr. Webb asked AIN Aziz Bello to go and wake Greg so he was ready for dinner. Mr. Bello returned and said he was unable to wake him. Mr. Webb went to Greg's room and found him still sitting in the same chair. He appeared to be asleep and did not respond to the effort to wake him. Mr. Webb described the sound of Greg's breathing as very congested, but he otherwise did not notice anything untoward. He formed the opinion that he was just in a very deep sleep. Mr. Webb left, telling Mr. Bellow to continue trying to wake him. AIN Emily McAlpin, a student nurse, started work shortly before 5pm, having been called in because of a staff shortage this day. Her first task was to take evening meals to residents who ate in their rooms and her first port of call was Greg's room. She found him sitting in his chair, chin forward, drooling and very cold and clammy. She could not rouse him so she went to get the registered nurse. RN Zubakova said that it was about 5.30pm that she was approached by Miss McAlpin and asked to come to Greg's room. She gave a detailed description of what she observed. In short, he was hypoglycemic and hypothermic. His blood glucose level was undetectable and he was given an injection of glucagon, which only raised the level to 0.09 millimoles per litre. An ambulance was called and Greg was taken to John Hunter Hospital. Amongst other things, he was confirmed as being hypoglycemic. He was admitted and remained in hospital until he passed away on the 29th of October 2013. Dr. James Valetic carried out an autopsy examination on the 30th of October 2013. She found the direct cause of death was aspiration pneumonia, with the antecedent cause being insulin overdose. She found no evidence to indicate any acute deterioration of Greg's chronic medical conditions prior to death. So, we have Dr. Gay noticing two of her patients with the same symptoms, one of them dying, and now a third resident from the same nursing home, again around the same time, also hypoglycemic and hypothermic, who would later die. Now, because no one really noticed the similarity of the three patients getting sick on the 18th and 19th, It wasn't until the 21st of October that police were called and the 22nd until they executed a search warrant at Summit Care. They were provided with all available records that would allow the police to determine who was in attendance on the 17th to the 19th of October 2013 and at what times. The records included a list of all residents staff rosters, staff attendance times as determined by the fingerprint scanner, wage records, the visitor's sign-in outbook, medical records, restricted drug registers, a signature list to assist in determining authorship of handwritten medical records, a list of persons who were diabetic or insulin dependent, plans of the building, a key register, a contractor sign-in report and the CCTV hard drive. 
Before the records were handed over to police, they were cross-checked by Summit Care staff to ensure their accuracy. Now, police did not conduct a physical search of the facility. The officer in charge of the case, Detective Sergeant Matthew Faber, referred to the delay between the events on the 18th and 19th of October. The matter coming to the attention of police on the evening of the 21st of October and the search warrant being executed the following day. He described it as a contaminated scene. Normal operations had ensued in the intervening period. Cleaners had performed their usual function. The main sharps container in the Mount View ward was examined and found to be empty of syringes. Bit of a bugger, hey, Islanders? Ms. Trainter said that the manager of care and lifestyle, Ms. Deborah Cardos, had responsibility for the stock of insulin on hand. Detective Senior Constable Graham Galbraith said that Ms. Cardos had been spoken to but had declined to make a statement after receiving legal advice. Nice one, Cardos. We need more obstructions to justice like you in the world, for fuck's sake. Anyway, before he passed away, Greg Kelly was able to be interviewed by police. Now, Greg wasn't in a very good way, so this was a very difficult interview. He indicated that he was injected not by a nurse or a doctor. Now, as I said, he wasn't in a good way, and he may have even indicated that it was a woman that had injected him. He did indicate, though, that the person that did inject him pulled it out, meaning, I hope, pulled it out possibly from a pocket or it was hidden. I don't know what else pulled it out with me. So detectives were able to put a list together of the people that were in the building during the time frames that the injections occurred. It involved trying to identify every person who was seen to enter and leave the facility. There were 319 people in total. Police were largely successful in doing so, but at the end there remained 35 people who could not be identified. However, the times they entered and left could be determined and it was established that each of these people only attended on one of the two days in question. So what they did find was a time frame when these uh, victims could have been injected and this is what they're going off, the people that could have been there in that time frame over those two days. They were also able to establish that there was no evidence that there were ever people on the premises who did not have a legitimate reason for being there. There was no evidence that people who had a legitimate purpose in visiting certain places within the premises but were found to be in other places. There was no evidence that staff who had duties to perform in certain places but were in other places without legitimate reason. There was no evidence that people who were not members of staff who entered a treatment room and people who were staff but not registered nurses or team leaders or people who were not staff members at all who were involved in giving any form of medication to patients whether it was required medication or otherwise. So nothing was out of place in regards to security and movements on a whole of the of people in the building. 
Now, the most important point of the expert evidence was to identify when each of the victims were injected with insulin. As I said before, there was evidence that insulin comes broadly in three forms, short-acting, long-acting, or a combination of the two. Dr. Quatch was the opinion that both Audrey and Greg received direct injections of high doses of long-acting insulin. He also said that long-acting insulin acts to lower the blood sugar levels within two or four hours of being administered. In relation to Gwen, a Dr. Tran said that the high level of insulin found in the post-mortem blood sample was most likely caused by the external administration of an extremely high dosage. So this gives the perpetrator time to administer the injection and then distance themselves before the effects take place, or the effect is not instantaneous, but happens over a longer period of time. Basically, without bogging down too much into all the experts' uh, opinion, they pretty much agreed that the injections occurred within eight hours of the victims displaying significant symptoms of hypoglycemia. That means that Gwen was injected sometime after about 8am on Friday the 18th of October. Audrey was injected sometime about 3.30am on Saturday the 19th of October. And Greg Kelly was injected that day sometime after about 7am. Gary Stephen Davis was on shift at each of these time frames. So detectives were able to narrow down a list of 25 people that could be responsible for the injection. Each one of these were interviewed and the list had a subset of people that were present on both days. Gary Stephen Davis was one of the suspects in the list of people present on both days. So let's get a bit of background on Davis. He was age 26 as at October 2013. He started a traineeship as an assistant in nursing at St. Joseph's Nursing Home at Sandgate in 2006. He worked at Uniting Care Kumbala at Wall's End from 2007 to 2009. He then took a casual team leader position at Redhead Gardens Nursing Home where he worked for six months in 2009 before taking a position at William Cape Gardens Nursing Home at Wyong, where he remained before taking up his position at Summit Care Walzen in September 2011. In October 2013, Davis was employed as a team leader certificate for aged care worker. He worked 6.30am to 3pm shifts, three days one week and four days the next. In his statement on 24th of October 2013, he said that he had worked in the Mount View ward for more than six months with the same staff and his duties included monitoring staff, medication rounds, simple wound care, resident progress notes and related documents, resident assessment regarding care, resident funding assessments, liaising with doctors, and general observation of residents. Davis said he carried out a medication round at 7am until about 8.30 to 9am. He then assisted the registered nurse with the Schedule 8 drug round. He carried out another medication round at about 12pm until 1 to 1.30pm. 
He said he regularly administered medications to Gwen, Audrey and Greg, including on the 18th and 19th of October. None of them received any form of medication by injection. Okay. Anyway, Davis said that up until early 2013, the Certificate for team leaders were permitted to administer insulin to residents. This was done via a wind-up insulin pen. In January 2013, management directed that all insulin injections were to be administered via a needle and syringe, and he said that this was something that a team leader was not authorised to do. Since the change in policy, he had not injected any patients with any substances, except for the very odd occasion, which he estimated at once or twice a month. This would occur when the registered nurse was busy and had asked him to do it for them. He said that the last occasion this occurred would have been sometime around the start of October 2013. The only patient that he could recall being asked to inject with insulin since January 2013 was a Mr. Rex Joyce. Davis told police he gave all three of the victims their oral medication from 7.45am to 8.30am. He told police that they all looked fine at this time, and I'm sure they were. Now, before I get into Davis's second interview with police, I need to talk about the availability and use of insulin at Summit Care. Now, insulin was not accountable. That I, I find this amazing. Look, it was not accountable, so no records were maintained as to its usage. Now, aside from when a patient uh, got some, it was put on their medication charge. So there was no record of stock on hand. It was kept in a non-secure refrigerator in the treatment rooms. So anyone with access to the treatment rooms could take insulin and no one would know. I mean... Maybe I need to get the rage on the management of this place. But it's, I don't, look, I don't work in these environments. We've got a few nurses that listen. Maybe they can get back to me and say, is this bloody normal or not? Anyway, in October 2013, it was the policy at Summit Care that only registered nurses could administer injections, including insulin, to residents. It was previously the case that team leaders could do so but the change in policy that they had came about in early 2013. Now, even with the change in policy, Davis continued to administer insulin to patients. RN Stephen Zhao said that Davis and one or two other team leaders continued doing so for a week or two after the policy change. Summit Care Management issued a further direction that injections were only to be carried out by registered nurses but Davis and a couple of other team leaders persisted, mainly when the registered nurses were busy and they felt they could help out. Mr. Zhao said he had the experience on a few occasions when he went to administer insulin to patients in Mountview, only to be told by Davis that he had taken it upon himself to do it already. <sighs> I don't know. Have you got people at your work that constantly do the wrong thing no matter how many times they're being told and they just give you the shits, especially when they get you involved in their bullshit. Anyway, in an extract from the medication chart 
for a particular insulin-dependent diabetic resident of Mountview Ward, there are a number of entries in the week of the 16th to the 22nd of October 2013 where only one person had initialed in relation to the administration of insulin. RN Maria Zubakova said that on the 17th of October, the 7.30am administration had been initialed by Davis and not by her. When she was asked about this by police almost a year later, she had no precise recollection, but considered it was likely that Davis had administered the insulin on her behalf. She'd been busy and Davis had done it in her absence and told her later. She considered Davis was being helpful and she described him as a reliable person who could do it. So Davis has already told police he rarely administered insulin and that the last occasion this occurred would have been sometime around the start of October 2013. You'd think he wouldn't have forgotten doing it on the days that the three victims were injected. Police were now zeroing in on Davis. In August 2014, now this is around 10 months after the victims were injected, Davis was called for a second interview, this time under caution. It was a seven-hour interview, so I reckon they had pretty much singled out Davis as the main suspect. There were questions about a search warrant that was executed at Davis's place on the 15th of December 2013. Seized items that were found included a copy of a chapter from MIMS, or MIMS, Full Prescribing Information. Now, this was dealing with human insulin. Also, about 15 syringes and about the same number of needles were found. Detective Sergeant Faber went through a list of names of staff the police had identified as being present at Summit Care in the relevant period in which the injections were thought to have been administered and he asked Davis whether he had any reason to suspect them. He did not suggest that any of them could be responsible, although there were some he did not know very well. Now, you'd think this is the perfect time to try and put the blame on someone else, but you've got to think. The problem with doing that, if the person you tell police you think did it, but they were totally cleared, you'd look very guilty, so you'd better not blame anyone else if you are the guilty party. Now, Davis was arrested at his home on the 17th of December 2014. At this time, they were able to get text messages from his phone. Now, I won't go into the full detail of them, but one message discussing how many residents were hospitalised in a short period on the 18th, well, Davis slipped up. When asked who he thought one of the very ill residents were, he replied that it was Greg Kelly. Now, this was at 11.27am, long before Greg started to fall ill. So how could he predict Greg Kelly getting sick if he wasn't the guy who injected him? Rookie error, Davis. I'll read out one exchange with Miss Monique Christensen. Now, that's just one of his friends. And this was on the 19th of October. It's around 10 p.m. Davis texts, I don't even want to go to work tomorrow. Monique replies, I don't blame you after today. Davis replies, But should be good, seeing we have three in hospital, two dead, one on leave. Saves me 30 to 40 minutes during pill round, etc. 
Now, what's... <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, uh, Monique replies, Oh my God, that's just horrible. I will be crying. I don't deal with death very well. Davis replies, Adrenaline kicks in. Best feeling. Monique replies, Lol, I would be on the floor bawling. You're good at your job. And Davis replies, I just enjoy what I do. Well, some may say it's just the black humour nurses have to get through all the death and despair. And to tell you the truth, I guess that is a fair comment. So, eventually Davis will be charged with two counts of murder and one of administer poison with intent to murder. Now, the prosecution was going to trial with a circumstantial case. And that was that Davis had the means and opportunity to inject the three residents of the nursing home and there could be no one else. The defence put forward alternative hypotheses, but these really were a shot in the dark. There was the multiple perpetrators theory, but the crimes were far from typical. They were confined to a very small pool of potential victims in a relatively confined space and in a relatively short time frame. Moreover, they needed to be perpetrated by a person with particular knowledge and ability and who had a connection with and access to the victims. So let's have a look at some of these alternative hypotheses. An unidentified person who entered without being captured on CCTV. Now this was seen as almost impossible, especially during daylight hours when the injections took place, as all entries to the building were monitored by CCTV and access to the entries via keypads. Also, they would have to have had to sneak in and out twice over the two days. Another one, was it a resident? Well, no, not really. The average ages of the residents in the Mountview ward was about 85. Now, the residents were in summit care for a reason. They could not look after themselves and they had various ailments and cognitive issues. So trying to inject someone or even get insulin into a syringe would be almost impossible. The resident or residents would have had to have access to insulin and syringes. There were two residents of Mount View that were insulin dependent, but it was not something handed to them to self-administer. Insulin was kept in a fridge in the treatment room that was locked most, but not all of the time. If a resident did enter a treatment room, it would likely draw attention. Now, a visitor as a perpetrator. While there were quite a number of visitors to Summit Care on the 18th and 19th of October 2013, there were only five who were present during the time frames for the injections of all three victims. They were all cleared by police, and when they gave evidence, the judge did not at all get a sense that they were being anything other than honest and candid. Now, was it another staff member as the perpetrator? In addition to Davis, there were 19 members of staff who were present at Summit Care within the time frames for the injections of each victim's. The content of the evidence of each of these people and the manner in which it was given impressed the judge as being candid, candid and honest. Now, I'll just say that this trial was a judge-only trial. There was no jury. Now, here is the circumstantial case against Davis. Now, 
Davis was on duty in the Mountview ward when the injections were given. Davis was skilled and experienced in the injection of insulin. Davis administered insulin to two insulin-dependent residents of Mountview Ward on the mornings of the 17th and 18th of October. Davis was found in possession of needles, syringes and information about insulin when police conducted a search of his house. Davis had access to insulin. Davis had the opportunity to give the injections. There was also the relationship between Davis and the victims. Davis was the primary medication giver for the three victims, so they would be less likely to object or complain about being given different medication than anyone else, other than the registered nurses, of course. They just probably wouldn't make such a fuss. Investigators found that no other potential perpetrator or perpetrators realistically could have committed the offences. There was also the text messages that seemed to predict Greg Kelly's ill health. So, in the end, the judge gave his conclusion. He found that, I am satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that one person was responsible for injecting each of the victims and that such injections occurred up to, at most, eight hours prior to significant hypoglycemic symptoms being displayed. Aside from the 20 Summit Care staff present in the facility, within the relevant timeframes on both 18th and 19th of October 2013, I'm satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that all other persons are excluded as suspects. In relation to the 20 Summit Care staff, their presence gave them, in varying degrees, the possibility of having access to each of the victims. Aside from this, there is no evidence or suggestion of them being responsible for giving the injections except in the case of the accused. In relation to the accused, there are various circumstances which I have just reviewed, many of them being unique to him. None on their own establish his guilt, but when regard is had to their combined force, I am left with no doubt. And so we get to the verdict. The judge said, I am satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the Crown has proved the offences in each count in the indictment and I return the following verdicts. 1. Murder of Miss Gwendoline Fowler. Guilty. 2. Administer poison with intent to murder Miss Audrey Manuel. Guilty. 3. Murder of Mr. Ryan Kelly. Guilty. Davis was sentenced to 40 years with a non-parole period of 30 years. Okay, so you think, well, there you go. He's away and he did it. But he has now lodged an appeal against his convictions where his legal team labelled the guilty verdicts unreasonable and not supported by the evidence and claimed that Supreme Court Justice Robert Allen Hume had erred when admitting coincidence evidence and using it to find it was a single perpetrator who injected all three elderly, non-diabetic Summit Care Walls End residents with insulin over two days in October 2013. They say Davis should be acquitted or a new trial ordered because the judge who found him guilty used the process of backwards reasoning. 
reversing the onus of proof and leaving Davis as the last man standing after other suspects had been eliminated. They also say it could have been a woman based on the interview with Greg Kelly and although the Crown did not have to establish a motive to get a guilty verdict, they did not find any motive to why he would want to kill anyone. Davis's legal challenge against his convictions will be heard in the Court of Criminal Appeal on October the 29th this year. So, just like Kathleen Folbig that I covered two weeks ago, this will be an interesting case to follow, I guess as all cases that rely on circumstantial evidence. Again, I hope that Davis was justly convicted, and if he was, then I hope that some technicality or just some different judge doesn't find him not guilty. If he is innocent, then let him out. I myself, after reading a lot more of the case than I could ever cover in tonight's episode, I tend to be on the guilty side. But again, all the evidence is circumstantial. So what do you think, Islanders? Guilty or not guilty beyond reasonable doubt or innocent? Now, there is a difference between not guilty and innocent. All right, look, my opinion, I think he did do it. But as I said, don't listen to me. The police were very thorough in investigating who was where on the two days that the victims were injected. None of the three required injections of insulin. Davis had the means and opportunity to commit the crime. His motive, I don't know, who. what the fuck, I don't know. Maybe if he hadn't done three in a row, then he may not have been found out. Maybe he had a burning desire to kill for a long time and finally decided to quench that thirst. Maybe they need to go back on a few old cases as well to see if there were any suspicious deaths. Look, I think I'll put another poll up on the Facebook. Look, I haven't raged tonight like I didn't rage on the Folbig episode. I'll leave that until the updates on those cases once their appeals or whatever they have, all that stuff's over and done with. So, boom vagalanga. Now, that's the end of the show. As we get to shout out to all the Patreons, all the new Patreon Islanders. First up, we have James N. Hopper. Thank you very much, James. Now, next one is, yeah, nah, g'day, mate, how you going? Obviously from Australia, and he's on the golden deck chair level. Thanks so much, yeah, nah, g'day, mate, how you going? Boom, fuck Then we have Chantel Wilson, who has joined the silver deck chair level. Thank you, Chantel. As you know, True Crime Island is a listener-supported podcast, and other than promos for other podcasts, it's commercial-free for all to enjoy. On the Silver Deck Chair $10 level, after three months, you get a choice of mug. And for the Golden Deck Chair $20 level, after three months, you get a choice of T-shirt. The $5 level gets stickers sent out after one month. And of course, there's the $1 level as well. So for as little as a dollar a month, you get a commercial-free podcast from the island. I have sent out rewards uh, for last month. So if you're expecting something and it hasn't arrived, just let me know. I do email all mug and t-shirt recipients beforehand, so if I have somehow missed you, please just email me. And to do the Patreon thing, go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. If you prefer to do a one-off donation, you can also go to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. 
There is a merch shop, truecrimeisland.threadless.com, where you can get yourself a range of island wear, such as T-shirts, hoodies, mugs of rage, and even tote bags. If you're on Facebook, you may have seen the two new shirts I bought the other day. They're very lovely. If you want koozies, keychains, stickers or lapel pins, email me at cambo at truecrimeisland.com so I can sort you out according to what you want, where you live. There are links for everything at truecrimeisland.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing and probably the best way to support the show is to share the love. Islanders, if you all try to share with at least one person a week, that would be lovely. If you, if you know people who don't know about the world, wide world of podcasts, grab their phone and help them out. Also, you can join the closed Facebook group. Just search for True Crime Island and one of our talented mods or myself will check you out and let you in. Thanks to Senga, Jason, Erica and Susan. There's also Twitter and Instagram and that's at True Crime Island. Right, there's a meetup on Saturday the 17th of November at the Retreat Hotel in Brunswick, Melbourne. So if you want to catch up with Bara and Tani from Blood and Bloody Murder, Sarah from Good Nightmare Podcast and Brod from Felon, plus myself, come on down at 2.30pm at Saturday 17th of November at the Retreat Hotel. Last year it was a great day and I'll bring an ultra-exclusive True Crime Island slasher t-shirt to give away and a few stickers and all that. So grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. Thanks to Tara who's done all that organising. Boom, fuck Tara. So next week there will be no episode. Sorry. As I said, I'm going to Melbourne and we're going to record another special with Tara and Barney. Plus, guess who looks like dropping in? Brod from Felon has indicated he will join us for a super flying fun show multi-mashup episode. I can't wait. Promo time. Well, I got busy this week. And I, I got no time for that this week. Happy birthday to mum and dad. Well, that's about all for tonight. And lots of love to Maggie Jane. So this has been Cambo. And you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Boom, bagalanga. 